0: Welcome to episode 47 of Sharing Life Lessons. This is season 5. We are one spirit, one soul. And together, we are creating a library of stories. I am your host, Hamida, and I want to bring you stories. Because stories inspire, stories teach, and stories heal. Listeners, I want to open this episode with a question to all of you. I am requesting you to listen to the question, hit the pause button, take a couple of minutes to reflect on the question and give yourself a very honest answer. The answer is for you and you only, so be honest and then hit the play button to listen to the rest of the episode. The question is, what is your relationship with money? The reason I'm asking you to reflect on this question before you listen to the rest of the show is because if you are aware of your own relationship with money, then you will be able to learn from our guest lessons that will be relevant to your personal situation. The lessons will not be general anymore, and you will get a lot more out of this episode. It is now time to hit the pause button. Welcome back. And now, I am happy to introduce our guest for today. She is a biracial financial therapist, a speaker, and author of the book, The Financial Anxiety Solution. In her therapy practice, she uses shame-free financial therapy to help people get their minds and money in balance. Everyone, let's welcome Lindsay Brian Podvin. Hello, Lindsay, and welcome to Sharing Life Lessons. It is so good to have you on the show because we are going to be talking about a topic that is very close to my heart, and that is our relationship with money. And so before we get into that in any shape or form, can you please tell us something about yourself?
1: Of course, so I'm a financial therapist and I'm really excited to be here today. My business is called Mind Money Balance. It's a financial therapy and coaching practice. I have a bunch of different things that I do. I think like many of your guests and many of your listeners, we wear many, many hats. I'm, in addition to being a financial therapist and coach, I'm a speaker, I'm a podcaster. My podcast is the name of my business, Mind Money Balance, and I'm the author of the book, The Financial Anxiety Solution, which is a workbook that helps people understand the the worries or anxiety that comes up with money and helps them work through that emotional side.
0: Thank you for that, Lindsay. You call yourself a financial therapist And many of us may really not know what a financial therapist does. So if you can give us some context around financial therapy.
1: Absolutely. So financial therapy, the research, the history of it, it's been around for a long time. The psychology of money has been used in many ways, shapes, and forms, but it's mostly been used in behavioral economics, in marketing, in advertising. And about 10 years ago, a, a group of both mental health providers and financial professionals, they came together to try and help their clients where there was this kind of missing gap. The mental health providers were saying, look, money comes up, but we don't know exactly how to talk about it. And the financial professionals were saying, look, mental health comes up and we don't really know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So they collaborated on the Financial Therapy Association, which helps both folks in the mental health field and in the personal finance fields to provide ethical information in each of those areas. So financial therapy really looks holistically at a person's relationship with money. So it's not just about budgeting and spreadsheets, it's also about what is your family's relationship to money? What's the story that you tell yourself about whether you're good or bad at money? What is? What has your culture, your gender, your neighborhood, your community, what have those things imparted on you that might impact the way that you look at money? And so financial therapy takes that entire whole person into account to help them to cultivate a healthy relationship with money so that they can make financial choices that make sense for them and that they feel comfortable comfortable and confident in doing. So it's a blend of financial literacy, psychology, social work. It's all kind of melded together to help people in their relationship with money.
0: That all sounds wonderful, Lindsay, because let me tell you, most people who are listening are professional. And I work in the financial industry. And so my relationship is very healthy with money. But when I ask people around me, who are my generation? And I ask them what their relationship with money is. Many of them tell me that they're scared about their relationship with money. And that scared word frightens me because that should not be a relationship with money. So I'm very eager to listen to your story and also especially listen to the life lessons that you're going to share with us today. So let's go to your story.
1: Sure. So let's, well, rewind. I am biracial. I'm Filipina and white, and my mom got pregnant with me when she was young. She was a senior in high school, and she decided to have me, but my biological father was not ready to be a father, so she had me as a single mom. Her parents, my grandparents were kind enough to say stay with us we'll help you out as we can so we were all together for a few years and during that time she went to college and became a nurse Mm -hmm. and during her time in the hospital she met a man who became my stepfather who was a physician and so they got married and we all moved and we moved to rural Michigan because my adoptive father went there on a rural healthcare grant. In a lot of rural America, there are not enough physicians. So they're often recruiting people to get folks to work there. So we grew up in rural Michigan. I mean, there was quite literally when I was growing up, two stoplights. They added two flashing lights when I was growing up there. It was small town America and my mom had four other children. So I was the oldest of five girls. I was the only one who was biracial. My my adoptive dad is white. My mom is white. So I was the only brown kid in my family and really in my town. My town was, I think it was like 98.7% white. So I really struggled with my identity, who I was, where I belonged, how I fit in. You went to your kindergarten class and you saw yourself as the only single brown girl. Yeah. It had have been a sticker shock for you. Totally. It's funny you bring up kindergarten because kindergarten was the time where I realized I was brown. You know, my little head couldn't really compute that I was different in some way. But my grandfather, who was white, actually traveled to India quite a bit. And he partnered with Indira Gandhi. One of her charities there was to help bring education into different parts of India. So he would go there and he would teach teachers. He was like a train-the-trainer. He would help with education there. And so he would come back from India with these pictures of these women who I'm not Indian, I'm Filipina, right? But it was the closest thing I had seen to a brown person. Mm-hmm. So he would come back with these pictures of these women who were darker skinned and were in these vibrant colors. And I would stare at those photos for hours. I just fell in love with these pictures of these women. And it, it's definitely cultural appropriation now. I can say that. But as a kid, I didn't know. So I would go to school wearing the bangles that he brought back and wearing the rings that he brought back. And I would tell my classmates that I was Lindsay's cousin from India And I would pretend that I was a little Indian girl, which again, I know is so bad, but I had no representation. And my mom also wanted to encourage me to, you know, she didn't, she, she did her best with what she could, but at that time, what they were taught was to be colorblind. That was the polite way to acknowledge differences was to say, we're all American. We're all the same. So that is kind of one of the first times of many times that I tried on different folks' identities. As I grew up, I can for sure say that I leaned into a variety of different identities trying to figure out who, who I was and where I fit in. So fast forward to college, I studied sociology. I thought I wanted to become a professor um, and I graduated right at the peak of the Great Recession. I graduated in May of 2008 before the crash. Now Hamida, before the crash, you could get a job doing anything as long as you had a degree. I remember. Right, <laughs> right? Yeah. You, the economy was booming. The, what we were taught was get a degree, you'll have a job, doesn't matter what you study. So I studied sociology, I graduated on, I think, a Friday, and on Sunday, I had a job in marketing in Chicago. I'd Mm -hmm. never taken a marketing class, never taken a business class, didn't matter. My region, even though the agency was based out of Chicago, was the, the Northeast. So I spent almost a year from upstate New York up to Boston and down to D.C., doing marketing. And when I say marketing, I was doing marketing that was um, (laughs) more like, you know, when you go to a concert and you walk in and there's people with these tables and they're handing out like t-shirts and lanyards and stuff like that. That was my job. So I would just go to music concerts for almost a year and hand out stuff to promote the product that we were promoting. I hated it. It was not a good fit for me, but Mm -hmm. I did get to see a lot of the Northeast that I hadn't really seen before. And I did have an opportunity to save a lot of money because the marketing company paid. I didn't have an apartment. I lived out of a hotel. They paid my hotel. They paid my cell phone. They paid our gas. They gave us a per diem for food. So even though I wasn't making a lot of money, I had little to no expenses. And during that time, the economy crashed, but I was so insulated from it because I continued to get paid. I continued to have my bills paid. So I was so oblivious to what it meant when that recession hit. So when that contract ended, they extended it to me and I said, no way, I'm out of here. And I went and I traveled. So I spent three months traveling through Europe and Asia. And I figured when I got back, I would just find another job. Mm -hmm. Well, that was then March of 2009. There were no jobs anywhere, especially for somebody who had a year of professional work experience on her resume. So I went back to waitressing and bartending in my college town. So I did that to make money and I did what a lot of folks who were millennials did, went back to grad school. I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't see another option. So I applied to a school of social work because I realized I didn't want to go back and get my PhD as I'd originally planned. I didn't want to be in school that long and I wanted to do less research and I wanted to do more like person facing work. Mm-hmm. So I thought that I would do social work because to me I get antsy pretty easily. So to me social work was a good fit because you could do something clinical and be a therapist or be a hospital. You could kind of bounce around. So that felt like a good fit of sociology, mental health, of my interest in people. So I went in and got my degree in social work. After I finished my master's degree in social work, I got my first job in a nonprofit where I was earning less than I did as a waitress. Mm-hmm. And that is when my relationship with money really reared up. I went, oh my gosh, I am living paycheck to paycheck. I don't know how anybody else in my field is making it work. Everybody in my field is telling me things like, well, you know, you didn't go into social work to make money or you're not here because money's important. But it was stressful to be living paycheck to paycheck as so many Americans have experienced, I didn't want to continue living that way, but I didn't know how to get out of that cycle because I felt so trapped. I had a master's degree. I thought I should be earning more money, but then my profession was telling me, be thankful for what you have.
0: I want to ask you very quickly. So in this period of your life, what Mm -hmm. was your
1: relationship with money? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you for bringing it up. So prior to that living paycheck to paycheck, I'd always been a server before I worked my marketing job. I'd been a server from the time I was 16. So my relationship with money was, if you need money, pick up a shift. If you need money, just go work. You'll be able to get cash in your pocket And That's how you do You call up the restaurant, you say, hey, I need to pick up a shift. Does anybody want to give up a shift? The end. If you need money, go make it. That was my relationship with money. Also, I came from an incredibly financially privileged background. As I mentioned, my father was a physician. We had our college paid for, which is an incredible privilege. So I did not come out of undergrad with any student loan debt. So I also had this relationship with money that was really interesting, which was my mom had kind of always taught us about money. She always narrated like what we were doing if we had an allowance, we always had to save some of it. Anytime she went to the bank, she pointed out what she was doing. Oh, I'm making a bank deposit. She would point out what the numbers on the like letterboards were. She would say, uh-huh. Oh, this is a CD, it's a certificate of deposit. This is what an interest rate is. She always just narrated what mm. was happening with our money, which again is an incredible privilege that I know a lot of folks didn't have. So I had this relationship with money of. It will always be there if you need it, and then when I got into this place where it was no longer there when I needed it, even if I worked more hours, it didn't mean I was going to earn more money. I was suddenly in a point where I had to really make my first budget, if you will. I couldn't Mm -hmm. just go pick up more money if my rent was due, or I couldn't go pick up another shift if my rent was due. I was kind of stuck. So that is then when my my relationship with money shifted from like, oh, it'll always be there to scarcity. Oh my gosh, I'm so worried I'm going to run out. And I hate that feeling. So then I started looking into personal finance books. So I started reading personal finance books, listening to personal finance podcasts, and I became more and more comfortable and confident in my relationship with money. But I also didn't resonate with a lot of the things that were happening from those books, right? A lot of it was like, you're stupid if you have debt or you're dumb if you go buy lattes every day. And that to me also didn't feel good. So I was like, there's gotta be a middle ground somewhere. There's gotta be a way to say, everybody's relationship with money is different. We all come from different financial backgrounds. You are not stupid if you have student loan debt, you are not stupid if you buy a latte and you have to figure out what works best for you in your specific relationship. For me, pre-COVID days, a non-negotiable for me was I was getting a facial every month. That was a way for me to practice self-care. It was my time to unplug. And some of those personal finance people would have told me I'm dumb for wasting my money on a facial. But for me, it was a part of my mental health care and my self-care, and I knew I could afford it. So anyway, so that is kind of how I started getting into the money stuff. I also found in my work as a social worker, I specialized in depression and anxiety money stuff came up all the time. And as a social worker, I wasn't supposed to talk about that with my clients. I was supposed to tell them to call an 800 number, have some debt consolidation firm help them out. But that was not my lane. And I was like, hmm, I think there's something missing here, which is when I mentioned in my intro, when I found out about financial social work and about the Financial Therapy Association. So I sought out additional training to ethically provide insight into money for my clients without advising or selling or stepping out of my lane. My lane is fully in the world of mental health and emotional health. And I of course incorporate money into it in my financial therapy, but I'm never advising somebody, managing somebody's money or selling them insurance products or anything like that. So yeah, I think that brings us up to where we are today.
0: (laughs) Kudos to you and to everyone else who's doing this because as much as this is not very talked about It is where there is a lot of demand. So you have a big job ahead of you because Mm. your first order of business is to get people comfortable with talking about their relationship with money. And only then can you help them to have a healthy relationship with money. With all of this experience of yours, and it seems like you just didn't fall into it. You methodically got yourself into it. So tell me, what are the life lessons you learned from the entire experience?
1: Oh, great question. So I learned quite a few things. When it comes to money, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that nobody is inherently bad with money. You already mentioned, we don't talk about it. We don't learn about it in school. We are not educated on it. In the United States, we are taught once you're 18, you're on your own. You need to figure it out but everybody is like i mean 18 to me is still a teenager so mm-hmm. somehow magically you're just supposed to know everything about budgeting about personal finance about credit scores about loans i want to say to you if you're like oh like you said i'm scared about my relationship with money or i'm worried or i feel stupid nobody is inherently bad with money and now we are at a, a beautiful age of the internet where you can find somebody who is a a personal finance educator who speaks to you without shame, without blame. There are more people now who you can turn to who won't tell you you're dumb or stupid. And I want to tell you if you have debt, if you have student loans, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you are not dumb. You are not bad with money. There are ways to learn And in other countries, they have more social safety nets and more supports than we do here in the United States, Mm -hmm. which is inherently linked to better mental health outcomes. The the World Health Organization did a huge study after the 2008 recession, and they found that in countries where there were stronger social safety nets, people's mental health outcomes were better. So I, I just put that out there. So that's a big lesson is you are not bad with money. You can learn, you can change, you can overcome it. And then another lesson is just, permission to grow and change your mind. When I was younger, Hamida, I really thought if you believe in something, you have to stand for it and buy it no matter what. And as I've gotten older, I have learned a a marker of true maturity is to say, You know, I used to believe that thing, but now I've learned new information and I'm ready to admit that I have grown in that area or I've grown beyond that thought or belief. It's a subtle thing, but for me, it's given me a lot of permission to really change. I really like that,
0: Lindsay. Thank you. That's a general life lesson. If you learn something that you know is better than what you knew before, then it's okay to let what you know before go and start- behaving with this new knowledge that you have. Can you convert that to money terms?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So in like you were saying, we have permission to grow, we have permission to change. So let's say you were 18, you got a bunch of credit cards because you didn't know, you didn't have any financial education around it, you didn't understand the annual percentage rates, you didn't understand that a minimum payment didn't mean you were paying it off, and you ended up in a ton of credit card debt. Fast forward, now you're in your 40s and maybe you've been holding on to this idea that you're bad with credit cards or you shouldn't be trusted with debt. Well, that was, you know, 20 years ago. Can you give yourself permission to forgive yourself for what you didn't know then? You didn't understand interest rates. You didn't understand the minimum payment. Can you say, I didn't know that then but I do know it now. And now I wisely, safely, comfortably can have a credit card. I can pay it off in full. I can build up my credit. And I'm okay knowing that I didn't know that when I was 18, but I do know that now in my 40s. So that would be one example of how you can grow past what you knew then. I like that. Very
0: valuable life lessons. So at what point does a person, or let me rephrase that. At what point should a person want to see Financial therapist?
1: Oh, good question. So I would say I think you can learn a ton about money on your own. I don't think you need to jump straight into financial therapy. I think you can learn a lot from books, from podcasts, from blogs. I would say. When I start to work with clients, is when they feel like they're stuck or they're repeating patterns, right? So, this is the difference between knowing something and doing something. I know I should have a budget, but I have a really hard time sticking to it. I've tried these three different things I've tried tracking, I've tried using an envelope system, I've tried waiting for 24 hours before I make a purchase, but for some reason, I just can't stick to my budget. I just can't do it. That might be a time to reach out to a financial therapist. Another kind of thing is this idea of this heaviness. A lot of my clients, because I specialize in financial anxiety, They're like, oh, I know I need to create a money plan, but the idea of even looking at my numbers, opening up my bank account, looking at what my credit score is, is so overwhelming and anxiety provoking that I just need somebody else there kind of in parallel to help me work through what is getting in the way of me taking those first steps. So that would be another good opportunity to work with a financial therapist.
0: And to my listeners, I want to say that if you, Lindsay just told you the red flags that you could be experiencing. And if you are, if you are anxious about learning your FICO score, your credit score, if you uh, are feeling heavy about any debt that you have and you don't know what to do about it, there is this big resource out there in a way of financial therapist And right now we have Lindsay's information in the show notes. So if you do need to use a financial therapist, please do. There is no shame in asking for help.
1: Absolutely. There's no shame at all in asking for help. And and to me, it's a part of being brave and being wise to say, I need some backup, right? I think being humble is is one of the strongest things that we can do.
0: And Lindsay, as a last thing before I let you go, Mm -hmm. is there one tool out of your kit for financial health that you can share with us?
1: Mm. Is there one tool? I would say one thing that I love to do with folks is to help them reframe what belief they have about themselves and about money and to look at it through the lens of what would I say to a friend. So if I have this thought in my head that I'm terrible with money and I'm a bad person because I have debt, if my friend came to me and said, oh my gosh, Lindsay, I'm such a stupid person. I have all this debt. I'm a horrible person. Would you respond with, yep, you sure are. You're a terrible human being. No, you would say, oh my gosh, you're a human. You made a mistake. You are absolutely worthy. So I would say, talk to yourself the way you would talk to a friend to help you shift those thoughts in your head about money.
0: Absolutely priceless. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Oh my gosh, such a pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on to share these words of wisdom with your audience.
0: Listeners, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Lindsay on how to build a healthy relationship with money. And I also hope that the quick exercise that we did in the beginning was helpful to make the lessons shared by Lindsay feel more personal to you. Now, here are my key takeaways. One, nobody is inherently bad with money. Don't ever think that if you are in debt or are living paycheck to paycheck, that you are dumb or stupid. You are not. You can learn. You can change. You can overcome. Two, you should give yourself the permission to grow and to change your mind. A marker of true maturity is to say, I used to believe in something, but now I have new information and I have grown beyond the belief I used to have. I think this life lesson is on the money, pun intended, for life as well as for money matters. Lindsay also shared an appropriate money example with us regarding this life lesson. 3. In order to help you shift any guilt-provoking thoughts in your head about money, be kind to yourself, the way you would be kind to a friend. Learn from your mistakes and bring the required change in your life to achieve financial health. And lastly, for those listeners who are parents, please... Please teach your children to be financially responsible from an early age. It is one of those good habits that will benefit them lifelong. This brings us to the end of this episode. I will bring you another episode of Sharing Life Lessons next Wednesday. Until then, be happy, be safe, and be well.